Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Don Marsh. Today we're going to help you find some potential income tax deductions you can take advantage of before the end of the calendar tax year. Get your questions ready at 382-8255, email us at talk at stlpublicradio.org, or send us a tweet at STL on Air, because joining us in studio is Lance Weiss, CPA and partner with SFW Partners, LLC. Lance, great to see you again. Don, thanks for having me. It is that time of year again. Yes, yes, it, in, in more ways than one, I yes, guess. Yes, it is. You know, it was almost exactly t- a, a year ago, the 22nd of December, that uh, President Trump signed the new tax bill. So what can we expect as a result of that? It's going to be going to be different. Well, it's going to be so significantly different this year. Uh, many, many fewer people will itemize their deductions. But I, I really think the big surprise that people will see is just the look of the new tax forms. If, if they haven't uh, seen, you know, the some of the draft forms that have been out, and I'm not sure who outside of my industry would have been looking for those. But the new 1040 is significantly different looking than it was. And gone are the 1040EZ forms and the 1040A forms. So no more short form or simplified form. We all use the same form, and it prints on about a half of page. They printed it on a half page per page, but they made it two pages long with six schedules to attach. And then we get to the itemized deduction page, and then we get to the interest income page. So... It's a significantly different looking form. Uh, when you go to print it, you're going to wonder what it is you're looking at. What is the method to, to this madness? <laughs> I, you know, I, I think they were trying to reach something that looked like a postcard perhaps, but instead it prints on a, on a half sheet of paper, um, which you're certainly not going to mail it as a postcard because it includes your Social Security number and address and all of that other valuable information mm-hmm. that you certainly don't want out there. And, and really, who mails a tax return anymore? They're all almost all done electronically. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, for years we've heard uh, people who are proponents of a, uh, a flat tax saying, oh, it's something you can just do and put it on a postcard and send it in. Are they setting us up for that, do you think? Well, the, <clears throat> the rates are a little bit compressed. Um, I wouldn't call it yet a flat tax, but some of the brackets, uh, you know, on a married filing joint, for example, there's – a big spread between you know seventy seven thousand all the way up to one hundred and sixty five thousand. That's at a flat twenty two percent. So we're not at a flat tax yet, but they certainly um, by decreasing the higher rates, they are approaching a flatter regime. Well, we'll see about that. It's been yeah. talked about for a long time. Yeah. And, and some of the notes you sent in advance of your coming in today, Lance, you said, in general, easy tax returns will be easier, but difficult returns will be much more difficult. Yeah, and, and they've done that really by eliminating some of the deductions so that more people mm-hmm. will take the standard deduction. So for those taxpayers who have a, a significant amount of state income tax and real estate tax and personal property tax, the, the cap on that now is, is $10,000. So even if your total state tax liability between real estate, you know, uh, personal property, state income tax might be well over 10000 your deduction is capped at 10000 And if you're one of those taxpayers who are renting or perhaps the mortgage is paid off, it will take a significant amount of charitable deductions just in order to itemize because gone are the miscellaneous itemized deductions. So no more chasing down the safety deposit box fees and the tax prep fees and the money management fees and things like that, all of those 2% itemized deductions have been eliminated. 
So that'll make the returns easier from the standpoint of I won't have to spend all that time looking for my itemized deductions because on a married return, mm-hmm. you'll take that $24,000 standard deduction. Mm-hmm. How difficult is it for people in your business to, uh, to adjust to a, a, a new tax form and a new tax code? Well, the, the new tax code is something that we've known about. As you mentioned, it was signed a year ago. Mm-hmm. So we knew this was coming. Um, the IRS and Congress have been slow to release commentary and regulations. In fact, they're promising us about another 300 pages of regulations to be released on the 28th of this month. Um, and that just deals with one particular provision related to businesses called the new Qualified Business Income Deduction. So. There are, you know, it, it takes it, it it it's taken all year to keep up um, with a, again why I said some of the harder returns will be so much harder. If you own a business and uh, certainly a, a large business, your tax return is going to be more complicated this year. Mm-hmm. You know, it, this has become a political discussion ever since the tax bill was signed, and of course even before. Uh, and the debate is really centered on who really uh, is, uh, is is most <coughs> benefited by it, and. The consensus seems to be that the wealthy are going to be better off than middle class and below. Well, the, the higher the income and if the income is from a business, there are, there's no limit on this new you know, b- business deduction. So if you have a million dollars of income from a qualified business, you real good chance you're only going to pay income tax on 800000 of that million because there's a new 20% qualified business income deduction. But at the same time, those harder, those harder returns, those business returns, <clears throat> to the extent they borrow a lot of money, there's a significant limitation on the amount of interest expense they can deduct. So then we get into the whole how complex should we make the structure in order to maximize that interest deduction. So there, there's a lot of planning that goes into it. Um, I would say that we do have, and Don, we've done hundreds of projections in our offices as we kind of approach and get ready for the tax season and hope people plan for the year end. Those younger families who would certainly be in, in the middle class range, to the extent they have kids, there have been a couple of real good provisions that help lower their tax liabilities. But you need to have kids under the age of 17. And, and if you do, you have a $2,000 per child credit. And really almost gone is that dreaded alternative minimum tax. Now, officially it's still there, but they've increased the exemption amount and they've increased the phase out of that exemption amount to where I haven't seen that dreaded alternative minimum tax hit any tax returns yet. Mm-hmm. So, D- Refresh our memories with regard to the alternative well, tax. I ask the same question every <laughs> yeah, year. It's, it, and it's really misnamed. It should have always been called the alternative maximum tax because it's something you pay when it's higher, not when it's lower. But the way the AMT worked is you added back all of your deductions for your state income tax and real estate tax and everything else. And you added back the exemptions that were taken on your return. Well, the new tax law got rid of the exemption deduction. So we don't get any of those anymore. So there's nothing to add back. And on the state income tax add back, that add back is capped at the only $10,000 that you can deduct. So we haven't seen AMT come into play, but you know, is there a real savings from that? Well, it depends on your family situation. And do you have kids? And Will you still be able to itemize? And, but uh, I, I would agree that certainly the, the higher the income, and if the source of that income is from a business, the larger your savings will be. 
Well, that alternative minimum tax is the product of a fiendish mind. <laughs> Coming up with a scheme like that is really quite something. It, it didn't start out that way in the late 70s, but that is certainly what it morphed into. Yeah. Okay, well, let's talk a little bit about uh, where people should be right now 10 days before, 10, 11 days before the end of, uh, end of December. What should people be thinking about? Well, you know, I think doing some quick analysis to see will you be itemized dedu- itemizing deductions and then is there anything else you can do to to, to help, you know, get one more of those in if there's anything you can do here before the end of the year. And that threshold on a single return is right at $12,000 and on a married filing joint return it's $24,000. So knowing that your your deductions for all of your state income tax and everything is capped at 10, then look at the amount of your mortgage interest and gone is the deduction for home equity line interest. That's another deduction they took away from us. Mm-hmm. Unless you can show the home equity proceeds from the loan were used to buy, build, or improve your home. So for many of our clients, they would borrow from the home equity and wipe out some credit card debt or catch up on, you know, wipe out the car loans or whatever Mm -hmm. it might be. Well, that interest is no longer deductible. So then we look at what's the interest expense on the main home and then kind of the, the baseline charitable deductions that have been paid so far. If that number is up or above the 12,000 single or the 24,000 on a married, then, well, let's look around the house. And is there anything else we can get to goodwill? And are there any other uh, charities here at the year end that we you know, want to make a donation to now instead of, say, first quarter this year? So we can kind of bundle and bunch up some deductions here in, in 18. Let's back up just a little bit, Lance. I want to be sure that everybody understands what we're talking about. When you talk about the, what was it, twelve thousand dollars? You yeah. said for for individuals and what twenty twenty four for yeah, twenty four. Uh, okay, right. what is it? What does that mean? So that means you, you add up all your income and then you get to deduct the greater of either that standard deduction or the sum of all your itemized deductions. So that it's capped at those levels, it, though. Is that right? Well, the the standard deduction is capped at twenty four thousand. Mm. But if you've donated, you know, fifty thousand to a charity, you can deduct all fifty thousand, yeah. and then you'll be itemizing your deductions. Mm. So you get the greater of those two numbers. And where before a good fifteen to twenty percent of us were itemizing deductions because that threshold on a married return used to be right around twelve thousand. Well, now the threshold on a married return is up to twenty four thousand. So many fewer will get the benefit of itemizing deductions anymore. What about uh, investment decisions at this time of year, this late stage? Yeah, you know, and certainly we just heard the market report uh, right before we came on that it was down another 400 points today. So to the extent there are some losses out there in the portfolio, um, if, if you sell those stocks or get out of those mutual funds and you have a loss in those, you can use those losses to offset any gains that you had during the year, plus you're able to deduct an additional $3,000 over whatever the losses, oh, I'm sorry, over whatever the, the income might have been. You know, of course, most, most financial advisors would say this is not the time to sell. Well, you know, and, and what they call it is the, the, the term that I hear so often is tax loss harvesting, where they want to get out of the stock now, there are some rules that says you can't sell it today and buy it back tomorrow and deduct the loss. If you sell it today, you have to wait 31 days before you buy it back. Um, otherwise, your loss is capped under what they call the wash sale rule. So, 
You're, you're certainly, the, the brokers, the money managers, the investment advisors, they're very familiar with all those rules. Right. Okay, it's already time for a break. We'll take that now. We're talking with Lance Weiss, and we're talking about things you can be thinking about and things you can be doing at this time of year to perhaps help you a little bit when uh, tax time rolls around in April. Back to continue the conversation, and again, we'd love to get you in on it. I'm sure there are questions out there. Give us a call at 382-8255. That's 382-TALK. Send us an email to talk at stlpublicradio.org. Org, or if you would prefer to send us a tweet, do so at STL on air. This is St. Louis on the air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. We hope you enjoy listening to this podcast of St. Louis on the air, brought to you by University College at Washington University. With undergraduate and graduate programs, part-time, evening, and online. University College at Washington University, offering world-class education within reach. And welcome back. We'll continue our conversation with Lance Weiss about the things we should be thinking about and doing as the end of the year approaches with regard to our tax obligations. Lance, I have in my notes here, I think we talk about this every year too, about um, deferring income. What are we talking about? Sure. Well, you know, a, a, a great way to help plan for retirement is to use the benefits of the individual retirement account. And there's something where into a regular IRA account, if you're under age 50, you can put $5,500 in that. And if you're age 50 or older, you can put in an additional 1000 So there's a $6,500 deduction that there's still time to take. So that's good. Certainly maxing out your 401k opportunities from your employer is a good idea as, as those often uh, are accompanied with a match from the employer. So the more of that income that you can defer during your working years, uh, you're generally in a higher tax bracket when you're working than when you're retired. So you take the deduction now at the higher bracket, and then when you're retired, you pull it out and pay it pay it back at a much lower rate. So that match from the employer is not taxed until you take it out. The match from the employer is not taxed until you take it out, exactly. Yeah. We have a call. Uh, Stefan is calling from Baldwin. Uh, thank you for being with us. Go ahead. Hi, thank you for taking my call. My question's about um, itemizing deductions or taking the standard deduction. And your guest said that in the past, uh, say a married couple would have to have over $12,000 in order to itemize their deductions. And if they got then, um, now it's $24,000. So my thought is that wouldn't the couple who had, say, $18,000 of deductions be better off under the new system? rather than under the old system? I mean, your guest had mentioned something like taking advantage of itemization, but under the old system, when they itemized $18,000 under the new, they'll itemize 24 and have a larger deduction. So I thank your guest for maybe expanding on that a little bit. Yeah, I'd, I'd be happy to. So it, you, if we looked at just the benefit of the itemized deductions alone, you, you're exactly correct, because certainly the $24,000 standard deduction that they get is better than the $18,000 itemized deductions that they used to get. But another part of the tax law was they took away the personal exemptions, and they kind of rolled them up into the same number. So a married couple before with, with no kids would have had two exemptions, and those were right at $4,050 a piece, so let's just call that 4000 So what that couple would have had was 18000 of itemized deductions plus 8000 of exemptions, two, two each at, or two at $4,000 each, for a total of 26000 
So now that $26,000 benefit is replaced with a $24,000 standard deduction. So if that were the only thing that hit their return, they'd actually be paying tax on a few more thousand dollars. But, you know, Don, what I found as we do those projections are that with the decrease in rates, that family would probably still be a few dollars ahead as far as their income tax liability would be a few dollars lower than what it would have been under 2017. But this is that, that fact pattern right there is one of those situations where the change in the tax laws and the increased standard deduction, but the elimination of the exemptions is actually causing a higher taxable income. Thanks for the call, Stefan. Yep. There's a lot of math involved, and I'm sorry to run people through that. Yeah, it's a little <laughs> hard to digest uh, over the radio, yeah. but uh, at least we know it's out there and something right. that can be pursued independently. Uh, I have a question here, I think, from one of our producers uh, saying the younger generations are dealing with a lot of student loans. We all know that. There's more student loan debt out there than everything that's owed on, uh, on credit card bills and even auto, uh, auto loans. That kind of thing is a problem for these youngsters. Is there any good tax-related advice when you're on a budget and trying to make the smartest decisions on that front? Well, you know, they, they say you, you do want to pay yourself first. So to the extent you can still manage those obligations and also manage to put a little bit in the 401k, that's, you know, certainly to your benefit. But, yeah, the, those personal interest deductions are, are gone. So. They've, done, they've really done away with a lot of the, over the last years, done away with a lot of those interest deductions, haven't they? Well, what they've, you know, and that goes back to, to 1986, actually, because mm -hmm. before 1986, we could even deduct credit card interest and all auto personal loans? interest and auto loans and yeah. all that stuff. So that's a deduction down that goes, that a lot of those disappeared 30 years ago. Now, some of that student loan interest, though, is still allowed as a deduction. Uh, there are some phase-in and, and phase-outs and a cap on that that I can't recall on top of my head. But the, the baseline student loan interest deduction for at least a portion of the interest they're paying is still deductible. Hmm. Suppose I, as a parent, want to pay off my child's student loan. Let's say it's $50,000. Okay. What's the tax implication here? Well, from an income tax standpoint, there's no impact at all. So mm -hmm. the interest deduction, whatever the, mm -hmm. the, the kids or the parent may have been able to deduct related to that student loan interest would disappear when the loan disappeared. So that's, you know, just really not, not, not either a good thing or a bad thing. It's just gone. The, um, there are some gift tax implications if you make a $50,000 payment on behalf of your kids. Now, a gift is never taxable. So... If mom and dad have one child and they give the child 50000 or they pay directly off that $50,000 loan, they've made a gift that isn't taxable to the kids, but it does reduce the amount of the total lifetime amount that the parents can give. Now, the Tax Cuts and Job Act made that amount, you know, such a big number. It, mm -hmm. It's just over $11 million per spouse at this point. So unless you're making a gift of north of $22 million to your children, you don't need to worry about paying the gift tax. Just to be sure I understand that. So <laughs> a, a parent can gift a child as much as $11 million over the child's lifetime. Is that it? W without having to pay any transfer or gift tax, yes. Right. So the estate and gift tax exemption amount is, I think it's $11,100,000 or $11,200,000. It's indexed for inflation each year. Now, and, and that's per parent, per child. Mm -hmm. 
So I, I'm sorry, it's per parent, not per child, but per parent. Mm-hmm. So a married couple could gift $22 million to their kids without having to pay any gift tax amounts. Or said another way, we usually hear this talked about in terms of, of the death tax or the estate tax. Well, now the parents, when they pass away, or the grandparents or whatever generation, can pass down to the next generation without incurring any sort of a death tax or an estate tax, that same $22 million. Now, for those of us who are living, there's another annual exemption amount on top of the $22 million, which is $15,000 per gift. Mm-hmm. So if the student only has, say, $25,000 of student debt, then mm-hmm. you know mom could pay off twelve five, dad could pay off twelve five, and then at that point they haven't even made a reportable gift mm-hmm. because it's under that fifteen thousand dollars each per person. Is this sort of gifting something that should uh, done be done before the end of the year? Well, it, that fifteen thousand is an annual amount. Mm-hmm. So you know, for the the very high wealth uh, clients and taxpayers who are out there, they usually do a program of annual gifting. And yeah, those are, they're done every year, either at 1231 or January 1, whenever they want to get it done. Some do it sooner, some do it later. Once again, I'll remind our audience, this is a good time to uh, get some good tax information from uh, the guy who really knows his stuff, Lance Weiss. 382-8255 is the number. That's 382-TALK. Send us an email to talk at stlpublicradio.org or tweet at STL on air. What about um, health care costs, Lance? Um, How do they come in? Well, there is still an individual mandate, shared responsibility, penalty or payment, however we want to think about that, that is calculated. And if a person doesn't have health insurance, they could be subject to that penalty on their income tax return. Mm -hmm. Now, part of this Tax Cuts and Jobs Act that was signed a year ago eliminates that penalty, but not until 2019. So the 2018 regime is still what it was in 17. And then if you don't have health insurance, Prepare to pay a penalty. Mm-hmm. Oh, those penalties. Yes. Let's see. Um, looking at my notes here to see some of the other things that uh, that we should be talking about. How about the uh, situation of divorce? Um, that does happen, I'm told. And uh, what are the tax implications of that? And what uh, should couples be thinking about before the end of the year? Well, there's, there's really almost not enough time at the end of the year to take advantage of the change that's coming at us. So... For 2018 and all years prior, the alimony payments that were made or that are made and for any payments that will be made (laughs) under an agreement dated in 18 or before are deductible by the payor and then income to the former spouse receiving the payment. Now, if a couple has a divorce that's finalized in 2019, they no longer have that tax treatment. So if your divorce is finalized in 2019, the alimony you receive won't be subject to income tax, but it has to be an agreement finalized in 2019. So, you know, we we do have a few clients who, should we hurry up and try to finish this divorce in 18 so that we can deduct the payments or wait until 19 so that the party who receives the payment doesn't have to pay any income tax mm-hmm. on it, but the party paying it loses the deduction. So mm-hmm. there is a change coming down the road with how alimony is treated, but here with you know barely just a, a week of court yeah. date time available, there's almost not enough time to get it done at this it point. It also suggests cooperation between the uh, spouses, and sometimes that doesn't work yeah. in these conditions. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think more often than not, cooperation doesn't work in that situation. Let's take another call. Stan joins us from Winsville. Stan, you're on the air. Go ahead. 
Hi. Yeah, um, I'm going to be a retiring school teacher. Uh, 25 years, I'm doing the rule of 80, um, which is basically like, a, you know, your top three years, and then you'll get 70%. Or, and my wife wants to keep working. She's going to go to 30 years, um, and that's for another three years. And I was curious if we should be filing separately now since I'm going to be dropping down to my retirement income. And I do plan to you know, get another job, you know, probably just working part-time somewhere. Well, the, so more often than not, married filing joint is still the preferred route to go. There, there are generally a little bit of tax savings that are generated by married filing joint where both spouses are in that middle income range where, you know, uh, but, you know, the term middle income has so many different definitions. Uh, the other thing I would suggest, though, is almost all the software out there has a tool where it will do an analysis of which is better. So you put the information in the software as if you file jointly, but then you ask the software to perform the test that says, would we be better off by splitting the return? So, you know, you're, it sounds like you're going to be probably right near that bubble where which is better. Is it uh, filing joint, filing separate? Uh, if there are any kids involved, it gets a little muddy with the newer head of household rules because they're clamping down on those a little bit from the preparer standpoint and that now we have to go through a formal questionnaire with our clients to determine do they really qualify for head of household. So again, part of what Congress is doing is they're putting more of that, you know, let's check this tax return responsibility back onto the CPAs and the preparers. Yeah. Thank you for the call. It just occurred to me talking about the forms once again, Lance, that uh, uh, is this, are they going to be easier for people basically in a general sense to figure out or is it going to drive more people to, to people like yourself? I think it will depend on their sources of income. Uh -huh. So if their sources of income are, you know, I've got a W-2 and then a 1099 from a couple of mutual funds, that I think they'll find the new forms easier. Uh -huh. But if they own a business or they have their own Schedule C that's a hobby that's generating the profit, then they're going to be harder because yeah. we have this new 20% qualified business income deduction where if they're making you know, $5,000 from their sideline or, or whatever they, they, how they want to think about that, if they make 5000 doing that, there's an opportunity to only pay income tax on 4000 of it. Mm -hmm. So you know, complexity reigns, so it depends on the return. Yeah. Let's uh, get a couple more calls in as time allows. We'll bring in Jennifer calling from St. Louis. Jennifer, thanks for waiting. You're on the air. Hi there. I have a question regarding rolling over a 401k into an IRA. I've been considering doing that. I haven't been with the employer for several years. I also have an IRA with that same company. And just wondering, does it make sense to move, let's say, take them all out of one bank and where I used to work at the bank and move it over into, into an investment firm. Does that make sense? Yeah, and, you know, as far as the specific investment firm and then the investments and how you put them together, uh, that's really kind of not the question for the, the CPA and the tax side, but a, a better question for the money manager. I can, I can give you a, a hint here, though, and that's to make sure that if you do roll the funds over, that you want to do it with a direct trustee-to-trustee -trustee transfer. So, you know, you, you just don't want to run the risk of getting a check from the 401k and then having to turn around and put that check into the IRA. You want to make sure that they do that transfer from trustee-to-trustee -trustee and it goes electronically without you having possession of that physical check. Hope that answers your question. Uh, thank you so much, Jennifer, for calling. Thank you. 
Karen in St. Louis, it's your turn. Go ahead. Yes, thanks for taking my call. I currently have, when I got my um, mortgage loan several years ago, I got an 80, they did an 80-20 loan. The 80% was just a regular mortgage, but the 20% was actually a home equity line of credit. Historically, I've been able to write off, again, the interest for both of those, but because that 20% part is a home equity line of credit, are you saying I would actually lose the ability to deduct the interest associated with just that portion and only be able to deduct the part that is straight mortgage? Can you explain that? That's my question. So the the default rule on the home equity line of credit is the interest is not deductible. But it sounds like you have the facts that would fit the exception to say, but yes, you can because – it relates back to the source of the funds for the home equity line. And since the, 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 the use of those funds, rather, from the home equity line went to buy, build, or improve your main home, you can still deduct the interest related to your home equity line. But if you have the home equity line of credit and you used it for vacations or credit cards or cars or you can't trace the, the use of those funds back into the home, that's where you lose the interest. But it sounds like you'll be able to keep it. Got it. Thank you. Thank you for the call. Ray in Ellisville, go ahead. You're on the air with Lance Weiss. Oh, hey, thanks. Hey, I, uh, you touched on it briefly. I'm self-employed. I, I, I own an S-Corp, and I pay myself a certain wage, and then the rest of the money is passed through on my 1120S, and I do my own taxes, and and uh, supposedly I can deduct 20%, or, or I haven't seen the new 1120S form. But supposedly I can take uh, only be tasked on the 80% I pass through to myself. Uh, I was hoping you could explain that a little more. And that's exactly how it's going to work. So you own an S-corporation, you get a K-1 from the S-corporation, and there's a number there in that box one of the K-1 from the income from the business. That will also appear on the K-1 with a special code down there in box 17, I believe. Yep. And, and the code's going to say this qualifies for the QBI or the Qualified Business Income Deduction. And then that's the amount that you get to, de- you, you get to deduct 20% of that amount. Now, that deduction won't be shown on the 1120S. That deduction is actually shown on the new 1040, the new form that came out. Okay. That there's a new line 9 on the 1040, that, then that's where you show that QBI deduction. The new line nine replaces probably dividends, I think. I could be wrong on that. Well, they've, they've changed so many lines <laughs> on the tax form. Um, I, I got you. Yeah, d- I, dividends are now up there on uh, line three as I look here at the form, but the, the new form, the new 1040 form has a QBI deduction um, gotcha. on, on page two of the form. Thank you for the call. One last, uh, one last question, if that's okay. Sure. Hey, uh, you said K1s. Let's say you have a limited partnership that you invested in, <clears throat> passive, you know, that you're, not really business income, but, you know, let's say you you invested in uh, real estate, uh, a REIT or something, uh, and, and it's got a, a, an EIN number and you get a K-1 on that, that income would not be, uh, 20% of that wouldn't be reduced, is that a correct statement? Uh, actually, no. So there are many situations where that REIT income will be eligible for the QBI deduction. Now, it'll have a different method that goes into calculated in that it won't have a wage test. It'll probably have a level of property ownership test related to it. 
but the REIT dividend, or uh, yeah, the, so, so the REIT income is eligible for the QBI deduction, and as is passive income. So you don't have to be active in the business; you can be passive in the business and still get the QBI deduction. Thank you for the call. I have, we have to wrap this up, but I do want to get a question from Raul in because it applies to a lot of people, I think. Uh, talking about those in the gig economy like Uber, Lyft. In the past, if you earn under $600, you are not issued a W-2, meaning you are not taxed to that in- for that income, even if you still worked a traditional job. That's still the case. Uh, that actually never was the case. Huh. So you're, you're taxed on the income from whatever source, whatever amount derived. There's a reporting requirement that says if it's under $600, you don't get a 1099, but that doesn't make it any less taxable. It just makes it harder to find. Yeah, Uncle Sam wants your money. <laughs> they want the tax on that 600 bucks. But here's the good news, Don. So that $600 of income from the gig, you only have to pay income tax on 80% of it. So only 480 of it is taxable under the new QBI rules. Well, that's, that's a little help. Yeah. That's why it's always a pleasure to uh, talk to you. You were never stumped, to, to my knowledge, for answers <laughs> to the questions remarkably, well, given the complexity I, of all of this. I couldn't recall <laughs> the dollar limit on that student loan interest. I've, I've got to go look that one up. So. Go stand in the corner. <laughs> stand in the corner. Thanks, Lance Weiss. Uh, Great to see yeah. you. He's with the SFW Partners LLC. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU.